0: This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Let's open our Bibles in here to John chapter 5. Before we start in John chapter 5, let's talk about next week and the the next three weeks after that. So the next four weeks. We're going to take a break from John's Gospel, and we're just going to go into a four-part sermon series on joy. And I'll give you the point now, but you've got to you know, come back to hear the rest after that. Uh, the joy of the Lord, what the, what the Bible calls the joy of the Lord, is unique and full and so fundamental to the Christian life that those who have been saved by Jesus Christ should be marked by the joy of the Lord, and it should change us in such a drastic way that we and others Look back on our former lives and say, I I really was dead, and I didn't even know it, but now I'm alive. And we should say things like, I used to think I had joy and things brought me happiness, but that wasn't true joy. That wasn't true satisfaction. That wasn't true happiness. Jesus is true joy. And that joy, we'll learn over the next four weeks, it doesn't come from within you, it's not some self-revelatory thing. That kind of joy can only come from God. And it's ultimately for him because it's from him. But he gives it to you as a gift. And so over these next four weeks, we will talk about the joy of the Lord. We'll talk about the spiritual fruit of joy. We will talk about joy in the midst of sorrow. And we will talk about an enduring joy. So come back starting next week, four weeks on Joy, But for now, let's finish out John's gospel, the fifth chapter. This has been a great chapter for us to spend the last month. In the Easter month of 2023, John chapter 5 has been fantastic. And there is a theme that runs through these verses this morning, and it's so important to recognize and pick up on the theme, be tuned into it, because refusing to hear this will, at best be a detriment to our faith, and at worst, it will destroy our faith. So pick up on the theme, and here it is. The greatest threat to our belief and trust in God, okay, so the greatest threat to our belief in God does not come externally. It comes from within us. Did you hear that? If you wonder where challenges to faith come, where your belief will be most endangered, it is not from society around you. It's not from a government. It doesn't come from your neighbors or the media or whatever else you think is wrong with the world. The biggest obstacle to your faith is going to be you. And the good news is that God knows that, he's always known that, he has planned for that, and he doesn't leave you alone and just say, you know, make sure your faith is in me or else you're in big trouble. No, he's gracious toward you and me, and he says, I know how vulnerable you are, so I will call you and I will lead you and I will keep you safe. And Jesus will lay that out for us now. So in these verses are four ways, four ways that God gives us to know who he is and that should lead us to faith in him. So there are four confirmations of why belief in Jesus is reasonable and rational and for you, but then Jesus will also bring out two ways that we are prone to hinder ourselves from coming to him. So four witnesses to who Jesus is, four witnesses to who he is, and two hindrances to belief in him. And if you're wondering why Jesus would put it this way, uh, here's an answer. Here's at least one answer. If we're ready to, to see the work that he's doing and the help that he's giving to us, and if we're ready to to put our faith in him, then we, we need to be alerted to where the difficulties to our faith will come from. Because if we do that, if we find confirmations, witnesses, testimonies to his goodness, to his grace, to who he is, and we believe in him, we better be prepared to keep on believing in him and we'll be in a better position to keep on believing in him if we know where the threats come from. If we know where the hindrances, the blockages, the barriers are at, we'll be in a better position to live lifelong, enduring, faithful witnesses for Jesus. So that's why Jesus does it this way. Uh, and so this, this is how I would put this. This is, this is kind of a picture I thought of. Um, just, just think of, uh, do you consider yourself to be sort of a pretty normal, reasonable, level-headed, level-minded person. Some of you are like, no, I'm crazy. But most of us, most of us will say, I, I think I'm pretty normal. And I, I do too. Uh, and, and let's just assume you are normal most of the time. But just think how easy it is for you to really get thrown off of your game. So most of the time we get along with one another we get along with our spouse, we get along with our children, we get along with people at work, we get along with people pretty well. But think about just the little things that throw you off very quickly. I mean, really, really little. You get a little less sleep, right? Like an hour less sleep, and it's hard. The, the, the days of battle with one hour less sleep. You're just a little hungry. All my hangry people in here you know you just get a little hungry you just don't have good protein with lunch and it's kind of hard for the rest of the day there's a little bit more traffic on the way to work throws off the morning right for some of us it's not even that we're pretty good until there's dirty clothes in that one spot on the floor and we've been very specific no dirty clothes there there's no hot water for our shower we work hard. All we want is a hot shower in the morning. There's no hot water. That's all it takes to throw us off. I haven't even mentioned coffee yet. Some of us really, really miserable without a morning cup. It can be the same way spiritually. We're going along just fine. But it doesn't take much to throw us off. We get jealous. Something doesn't go our way. Prayers aren't answered in the way that we want them to be. And so what Jesus is doing is readying us here by saying there's lots of good reasons to believe, plenty of good reasons to believe. And for the most part, belief should come to you. It makes sense to have faith in God. All of that should come, but it's going to be a lot harder than you think. And that's the Christian life, isn't it? For those of you who've been walking with Jesus for a long time, you know all the reasons. You know all the proofs. You've seen God be good in the past, but faith is still sometimes seems harder than it should be, doesn't it? It seems harder to believe in Jesus than it should be, especially for those of us who've been walking with him for quite some time. And so Jesus says, I'm getting you ready for the hard. It's going to be hard. I'm just getting you ready for that. And then he's going to say, thanks be to God. It's not ultimately up to you. I, even when it's hard, I'll provide what you need. He'll be to you what you could never be to yourself, which is rock steady, steadfast, and endurance. So these are four witnesses to who Jesus is, what he comes to us to do, and then two pitfalls, two barriers to our belief that we should be ready for and guard against. Therefore, we can guard against. So the first witness is, is and we're just going to read John 5 we're going to pick it up at verse 30 let me say a couple of things and then we'll begin reading but the first witness is God the father himself. Jesus is going to say he validates that Jesus is God the son so God the father is the first one to validate that God is the son and to to get some of this uh, you need to look back at the previous verses so before we start reading in verse 30 just a few uh, things about the previous verses. What Jesus is doing is speaking, and he's been actually speaking for quite a while now, since verse 17. And so he's already said, before we're going to start reading, that God desires that people honor Jesus just like they honor him. That's verse 23. Last week, then, we read that Jesus says that the Father and the Son are of the same Essence. In verse 26, he says they both have life in themselves. That's a, a clear reference to something uh, that theologians call God's aseity. He's self-existent. Comes from a Latin word. Everything else proceeds from Him. Uh, the book of Hebrews says that when somebody swears an oath, they swear by something greater than themselves. But God has nothing greater than himself. And so when he swears an oath, he just has to swear by himself. He's the only one in all the universe that says, on my own name, I will do it. Here, Jesus is saying, his life doesn't come from anybody else. And so he's the greatest testifier, God. If you're going to wonder, well, who is the greatest testifier to the the character and the work and the person of Jesus Christ as God in the flesh? Who can validate that? What has to be God? We have to start with God validating because there's no greater place, no greater person for that testimony to come from. And that's where we pick it up in verse 30 with God testifying that Jesus is his son. So John 5, verse 30, we're just going to do this in a lot of parts. It's going to be a little stop and go. I debated going through the whole thing. It's a lot. I think it's better if we work through it this way. Five, starting at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own, says Jesus. This is Jesus talking. As I hear, I judge, as my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another, this is God the Father, there's another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So when Jesus starts by saying, I can do nothing on my own, uh, he's not saying that I have no say in what's going on. And that he's he's some kind of a, a private in the military where he's just low on the totem pole, low on the ranks, and he's just following orders. He's saying, I don't have to act on my own because the Father and I are perfectly one. So everything that Jesus wants to do, the Father wants to do. And everything that Jesus is doing, the Father is loving. Uh, To get what he's doing here, you have to know where he is and and why he's speaking. So he's been speaking for quite a while, but why? And then you have to kind of ask, well, why does John include this specific thing in the gospel? Uh, This all goes back, everything that Jesus says goes back to Jesus performing a miracle that challenged the the religious establishment's conception of who God is and what he's like and, and what pleases him on earth. So members of this leadership council then find Jesus, they confront him, and they ask, who are you to do these things and who are you to speak this way? And all of what we're reading now, and I've been reading for a couple weeks now actually, is part of Jesus' answer. And John puts this in his gospel because there is one big question that we all have to answer with our lives. And the big question is, do you believe that Jesus Christ is God's son? That's the big question that you have to answer with your life. Do you believe Jesus Christ is God? If you do, you're saved by him. And as evidence of your salvation, you'll honor him and you'll follow him. But if you do not believe that Jesus is God, and this is what we've just said twice in the last two weeks. Jesus said this twice in the last two weeks. If you don't believe that, you dishonor him, you reject him, and you face judgment. So Jesus is saying, if you value at all what God is doing, if you value God at all, in fact, you will value me. Now, when it comes to this testimony, there's something we need to pay attention to. There's something that I think you'll find curious in here because it helps us to see how all of this works and how all of this fits together. One of the most common challenges to the validity of the Christian faith is to say that you can't prove that Jesus is God. And that's essentially the question that Jesus is being asked. So As religious leaders come and say, you know, by what right are you doing this? By what right are you saying this? And the first part of Jesus' answer is, by God the Father's right. God has given me this right. He's basically saying, he sent me But then if you look at what's happening here, very specifically, look at verse 32, the testimony of God the Father is not actually toward or for these other people. Jesus isn't saying, God is testifying about me for you. Look at what it says in verse 32. So there is another, this is what it says, there is another, this is referencing God the Father, who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Jesus could have said, and you should know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Or he wants you to believe his testimony about me. Now he does, but why does he say it this way? This is a very curious way to say it. And I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. Why? This is huge. The, the answer to this, why does he do it this way? Why is the testimony of God toward Jesus? Why is Jesus saying, I believe the testimony, not saying you all out there should believe the testimony? If you want to claim, and this goes back to this claim, if you want to claim that Jesus wasn't really who he said he was, then part of your challenge has to be that he had some other motive to be claiming to be God, claiming to be able to save the world, do everything he did. He has to have some other motive than he really did believe this is who he was and, and what God had sent him to do. So, so what's the motive? What, what would his other motive be? I'm just kind of running this in my mind. Uh, it can't be money. He died penniless. Never sought any wealth of any kind. So he died penniless. Can't be money. Uh, can't be power. He ended up being mocked and abused. Jesus was not after power. Uh, he's become famous but the path he chose, if he wanted to be famous, he would have never chosen to do it through this path. That makes no sense. He was from a place far from any uh, center of influence. And Jesus never, Jesus never went with, outside of you know, a couple dozen miles from his hometown. He never demonstrated a desire to go anywhere of any significance. So why did he do what he did? The only answer that makes sense is that he believed that what he was doing pleased God and that God was very pleased with him. I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. The testimony is what God said when Jesus was baptized. This is my beloved son and with him I am pleased. And this is why this is huge. Jesus doesn't need your approval, and he doesn't need my approval. Jesus isn't seeking our worship. He's glorified by it. It's right and good that we give it to him, but he doesn't need anything that we have to offer. He is not beholden to us in any way, and that perfectly positions him to serve us and to save us. If there was something that he needed for us from us in return, then our salvation would become transactional. We get eternal life and, and you know, he gets good feelings of being worshiped or something like that. But it's not like that. God the Father has already testified about him and Jesus knows that that testimony is true. He believes it. Jesus's heart is already full because God has said, I'm pleased with you. Jesus is satisfied by that. And so he can fully serve and fully save. Jesus can't fully save you if he needs something from you. But he needs nothing from you. And so the first witness is God the Father being pleased in God the Son. You you don't want a Savior seeking something from you. If you had that, then you're involved. You're even kind of conditional on that. It means that actually your eternal destiny would be up to you to get it right, to do it right, to live rightly, to worship rightly, but it's not. Jesus can give you life and you can receive it by grace because God has told him that he's enough and he's worthy. And and that's a great, great thing. No other religion in the world, no other faith in the world, claims this kind of glory to say the Savior is enough apart from any of the people's worship. And that's a great, great thing. So the first witness is is that of God the Father. The second witness that Jesus is now going to point to, now he's going to point to some earthly witnesses. He's going to point to John the Baptist. So let's keep reading in verse 33. You sent John and he is born witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now let's stop there. What's coming, again, is that Jesus is gonna point them to two great barriers that that people put up to faith in him. Remember that that comes at the end. What he's setting them up for is those listening to be able to hear what those barriers really are? So he's setting them up by saying, "This is what you have been doing. Let me tell you how that's actually been harming you." So, so now he he turns he, he turns to something. That he said, "You know, you're not going to be able to know this about God the Father. Only I know that, and that's okay because I'm satisfied in it. I'm I'm complete by that." But what he turns to is what these people around him can agree on. Uh, you could argue that it's hard for them. If Jesus just said God the Father testifies to me, end of story. The people could have said, "How do we know that that's true?" But it's far more difficult. That's why Jesus brings in John the Baptist. It's far more difficult to argue against what happened with John the Baptist. So if you if you know not not very much about John the Baptist, who's not John who wrote this gospel, two different Johns. John was a great John the Baptist was a great preacher who drew people back to repentance and faith in God. And for a time, he got quite popular. When Jesus comes, though, John started telling people that Jesus was the Son of God, started saying things like he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and all of a sudden, John's popularity faded. That was fine with John. John was great with that. Other people, not so much. And verse 34 is the main point here. Jesus doesn't need John's testimony, but he says that people were believing John's testimony. John was going around saying, God is on the move. There's a big movement of the kingdom of God coming in. Something large is about to happen, and people began to get excited, and crowds began to gather, and even religious people began to say, well, what is this? Well, as soon as John said, well, and this is it. It's Jesus. This Jesus of Nazareth. They said, Now we don't want anything to do with that. And so Jesus is drawing this juxtaposition. You believed John until you didn't like what John had to say. He's saying, he's asking them, if you won't accept the testimony of God, and now you're saying you won't accept the testimony of John because he kind of you know, pulled this switcheroo on you, and now you're going to refuse my testimony, the question Jesus is beginning to ask, is there anything you people will believe? Is there any testimonies that you'll believe? Be careful not to make sure you aren't setting up a kind of faith that has to answer every question you have and meet every expectation you put on it before you'll believe. God decides the terms of faith, not us. And so let's be really, really sure we're not setting up an expectation for our belief that we can't possibly ever satisfy. Witness number three. This is the very work of Jesus, verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one who He has sent. So this this continues to build on this rhetorical pattern of asking what will be satisfactory for these people to be to hear, because Jesus knows He knows the answer is nothing. So the gospel writer now turns to the signs and the miracles that Jesus did to display his divinity. He's saying that these were proof from God. If you want to know if God's pleasing this, if you want to know if God's in this, look at the signs and the miracles. This is the third testimony. Uh, remember, all of this started, the, the whole reason that Jesus is being confronted by these people is he healed a paralyzed man. And it was supposed to be a testimony to his power, and so that you would know that what he says is true. But for the people who've now confronted him, that had the opposite effect. It made them feel threatened, it either scared them or it riled them up now in kind of a, of a defensive anger. Jesus didn't do his miracles for a thrill. He didn't do them for attention. In fact, a lot of his miracles, he's telling people, Don't go, don't tell anybody I did this for you. This is just for you. So when he heals this paralyzed man back at the the beginning of John chapter five, he did it so quickly and so discreetly that he got away from this man before the man even knew who he was. In fact, the people ask who healed you and he's like, I don't know. I don't know anything about it. It's only after Jesus goes back to find this man and tells him the miracle wasn't done so that you could walk. I'm glad you can walk. But the miracle was done so that you would believe in God and you would turn from your sin. That's, that's, he, he only finds out that it was Jesus at that point when Jesus kind of circles back to him after the crowd is kind of dispersed. And the point that Jesus is making here is that people who are close to the Lord, people, two people who are close to the Lord, the work of Jesus, the miracles he's doing, this man getting healed on the Sabbath, Those are all evidences of the work of God. But to people who are far away from God's will, cold toward the compassionate heart of God, the miracles are gonna be an affront because they challenge people's perception of God. And the same thing can happen to us today. I think, I hope most of us, when we hear of somebody coming to faith in Christ, we're going to rejoice. We're going to praise God. But what happens when we know that that person maybe had a sordid past? What happens if they have at some point offended us? What happens when we begin to wonder, do they really deserve God? I know how rotten they used to be should they be extraordinarily blessed by God. Uh, When God abides in us, we'll delight to see his work. So make sure you're not growing bitter toward the work of God, especially his saving work. That's a very troubling sign. And I think I would add this. It's not just in other people's lives. Be careful not to become cold and hard against God's work in your own life. When God calls you and you respond to the gospel, he begins to shape you into the image of Jesus. Sometimes that feels good, and you think I'm headed in the right direction. It's enjoyable. Often, though, it will be stripping away layers of the old self and putting on the image of Christ, and it's going to hurt a little bit. So don't become cold to the work of God and don't become especially bitter when God is working in the lives of other people. That's a path to destruction. This whole thing starts when a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years is given the ability to walk again. And a bunch of people surround Jesus and say, who are you to do something like this? No, 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 friends, praise God that he can do work like this. When God does something, God's people rejoice. Witness number four, the last witness that we're going to talk about is, that Jesus brings out is the scriptures themselves. So starting in verse 39, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Uh, This is the one that should make you sit up a little bit straighter and take notice. And if you're a Christian, you should wonder what I'm about to say right now because I'm a Bible guy. We're Bible people. This is a Bible church. Yet what Jesus is telling us is it is possible to look intently at the Bible, study it, and miss its message entirely. So we've got to make sure, as Bible people and a Bible church, that we don't do that. For these people, what they had was our Old Testament. For us, what we have is a complete set of the Scriptures. And what Jesus is saying is they looked at it a lot, but they missed the main point. Uh, after the resurrection, Jesus walks with two men down uh, a road, and he shows them how the entire Old Testament is leading to and unveiling him. So how do you miss that? We have to, this is an important question for us. How do you miss that? There are a few clues here about how they were missing it. We can learn from this. One of them goes back to verse 38. You do not have his word abiding in you. Uh, Abiding means to remain or to dwell or to rest. So they were reading the Scriptures, but they weren't sitting down in them and letting them steep within them. Don't just read the Scriptures to get through it. Sit with the Scriptures. Like tea... In a warm cup, let them steep in you. And a second clue is that they searched the scriptures. This is subtle, but it's a difference. And I think there's something here. So if you are searching, if you are searching, you have an idea of what you're searching for. So you don't go home and wonder where your spouse is and say, hey, where are you? And you don't find them in the basement with a bunch of boxes open and ask them, well, what are they looking for? They will not say, I'm just seeing if there's anything transformative down here. No, no, no. What what they're looking for is something specific. And what's going to happen? When they don't see it in one box, they will move on to another box. When they do find it, they're going to stop looking. Jesus says, you're searching because you will think you have life in the Scriptures but you've got it wrong on two accounts. First, your life doesn't come through the Bible. This is, again, a really subtle distinction. But life comes through Jesus, not the Bible. The Bible shows us life. It doesn't give us life. So imagine a young couple that has moved for work or something far from home, and they have a baby. And now technology from wherever we are in the world, allows us to do a, you know, a Zoom or a FaceTime or a Skype or whatever, and we can do a video chat across even oceans. So they get their, you know, their, their parents, who are now the grandparents, and they get the grandparents, who are now the great-grandparents, and they're showing them the new baby. And the new grandparents and the great-grandparents are marveling at the technology to be able to see And they're going, wow, how amazing is this, the phone and the picture and the camera. No, 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 folks, the baby is the miracle. The baby's the point. So what about the technology? Yes, so what, though? The baby's the point. The grandparents, the great-grandparents delight to see the baby. They don't marvel at the iPhone. They've missed the point if they're marveling at the iPhone. Life is right in front of them, but all they can see is the delivery system. The Bible's wonderful because of what it shows us, not because of what it is itself. So these people were looking for life in the wrong place. Life comes from Jesus. And this brings us to the two barriers that Jesus is warning about, these two barriers to our belief. He wants us to believe in God. He wants us to believe in him. He wants us to be saved. And so he said there are these witnesses. It makes sense. It's reasonable to believe in me. The primary witness is God. And then there's these these earthly witnesses. You can see them around you. You can see what John the Baptist was saying. You can see what he did in the world, what Jesus did in the world, the miracles and the signs, the connection between his divinity, that he had the power and his humanity, that he left heaven and came to earth for people. He had the power to save. And then he said that the word of God points to him. But what you'll see now in these two barriers is that they are not challenges to any of those things. The barriers are not challenges to any of those things. So our greatest threats, the greatest threats to our belief are not external. They're internal. He brings out four witnesses. The barriers are not against those. We can be our own worst enemy. So pay attention to these things because they'll come for all of us. Barrier number one is our desire to be liked and praised by other people. Look at verse 41. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? In other words, what Jesus is saying is that he is God in the flesh and the Savior of the world, no matter what these men think of him. Remember, God has already testified about him, he doesn't need any of this other praise. But he's that way. He doesn't need the praise. These men in front of him are not. They love the praise of other people. In fact, they they love it so much that Jesus is saying it prevents them from seeing what they claim to be looking for, which is right in front of them. If you are worried about what people in the world will think of you if you follow Jesus, you're going to have a really hard time following him because you're not actually first concerned with him, you're most concerned with other people. If Jesus is your Savior, he has to be your Lord, and if he's your Lord, he is your audience first for praise and for his pleasure and for what you desire most to please. If you're more worried about what other people will think of you, that's where your focus is going to go. It's where it will be. So how do you fight against that? How do we fight against this first barrier, which is being liked or wanting the praise of other people? Uh, Remember this. There's nothing more glorious than God. And the the only things that last forever are him, his word, and the souls of people. Nothing you can gain in this world will last But being near to him and found in him and known by him goes on forever and ever and ever. Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I hope we find that the Lord is better than anything this world has to offer. If we think there's something better in the world, we'll go after that thing, and that will be a barrier to our belief in Jesus. One more barrier, and I think this one's surprising. I think this one's really surprising. Uh, Let's finish out the chapter, verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The second barrier to belief in Jesus is hope. Usually we use hope in a positive way when we look at the scriptures. But here, the barrier is misplaced hope. That's why this is surprising. It's often a good thing to have hope in the Bible. But Jesus is saying, I don't need to testify against these people to the Father. Their own hopes, in other words, what they're misplacing their hope in, that's gonna do that for them. They're all, that's already testifying against them. Uh, when it says Moses on whom you've set your hope, what that means is the writings of Moses. So that's either the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, or sometimes they would just say Moses for the whole, what's often called the law and the prophets, or really basically the entire Old Testament. This kind of goes back to what he was saying about searching the scriptures. Their misplaced hope was that when they read the Bible, they thought it taught of a harsh, Difficult to please God who did not like them. But they were wrong. What, they, what it really tells of is a God of kindness and grace and steadfast love who despite his people's continually turning away, are continually turning away, God pursues people over and over again until he finally pays the ultimate price of his own son so that he might have us forever. That's real hope. Jesus dying in your place is real hope. Thinking that you can find the Bible and find the right combination of rules is mistaken and misplaced hope. So basically, hey, if you go into the Bible and you're looking at what Moses wrote and you're trying to get it just right, I don't even need to testify that you're wrong. It's going to do it itself. The law is plenty to point out your insufficiencies, So what Jesus is saying is, Moses isn't going to save you. The law and the prophets, they're not going to save you. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. I alone can save. And the line that Jesus is drawing here is you have to decide if your hope, this is how it works, is your hope in you or is your hope in Jesus? To read the law and think that you can achieve perfection under it is really to hope in yourself. That's what you're saying, is ultimately my hope is in myself. But to have the humility to know that you can't be enough on your own and to surrender yourself to Jesus, asking for his mercy, trusting in his obedience, being confident in his shed blood, that's hope in something far greater than you. But that's hard. It is hard and almost seems contra-human to give up hoping in ourselves for hoping in somebody else. We want to be enough. And so it takes a great work of God. Not a great work of you. It takes a great work of God to give you the grace so that you might humble yourself in saying that I know that I'm not enough. Jesus is That's what we have to do if we're going to live forever with Jesus. Ultimately, we must reject our own self-righteousness and self-determination and self-glory to receive the life of Jesus Christ given for us, a ransom sacrifice, so that our sins may be paid for and our life hidden with God in Christ. If that's the case, then nobody can come and accuse us. But if we stand on our own, we will be open to accusation. Hide your life in Christ through humility. Hide your life in Christ through self-sacrifice, giving over, self-surrender to Jesus. That's how you're going to find life. All these things witness to God. But the hardest thing for you and I to do is to admit that we can't be enough on our own. Lay that down, surrender to him, and live forever. Let's pray. God, may we see the testimony that Jesus is your son, And in him find life. Ready us to endure in true hope by pointing out what is inside of us that we must reject. See that it's washed away by the overfilling of the presence, the glory, and the love of Jesus Christ given for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.